Would you stand with me as we read, please? We'll be reading from both Isaiah and Galatians, but for the sake of time, we will not read all of Isaiah, just verses 4 through 9. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The word of the Lord. Last week, we started a new sermon series entitled, How the Cross Works, which is a consideration of what happens in the atonement. If we were speaking about this sermon series in terms of historic or systematic theology, we would call it theories of the atonement. Last week, we began by considering what is the oldest theory of the atonement or the oldest exploration of how the cross works, which is called Christus Victor. And at the heart of Christus Victor is the notion that Jesus defeated Satan and the principalities and powers of evil at the cross. However, as church history marched on and the church began to think about what was accomplished at the cross and how scripture speaks of the cross, they realized that this did not tell the whole story that there were other answers that needed to be had in terms of understanding what happened at the cross. Now, even as we begin to jump in, let's remember how important it is that we remember and understand what happened at the cross. The cross is the very baseline of our salvation. It's the baseline of everything we do and engage in at Rockwell Prez in terms of cross community and cultivate. But not only is it the baseline of our salvation, it is also the paradigm of our discipleship. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow after me, he is saying, if you understand 
what it means to come after me, it will look like engaging the cross that I have engaged in, that I have taken up. And so both for our salvation and for the road that we are expected to trot as his disciples, we have to understand uh, fully what happens at the cross and its implications. So Christus Victor gave us a piece of that answer. It was one lens through which to understand what is happening on the cross, but it is not the whole story. And you need to fast forward to the medieval ages and enter Anselm, a pretty sophisticated and gifted medieval theologian. And what Anselm said was uh, there's a lot of talk about a debt needing to be paid in Scripture. He would employ the word satisfaction a great deal. Sometimes his theory of the atonement is referred to that way. And Anselm's basic notion was through human sin, much damage has been done to the creation. And there must be a payment made for the damage that is done. Now, you might understand it in this, in this sense. Imagine that I broke Ricky's taillight to his car. Now, damage has been done. How is that damage going to be fixed? Well, I can pay for that damage to be fixed since I did it. Or Ricky could say, you know what, Ryan, don't worry about it. I forgive you. I'm going to absorb the cost of getting it fixed. But in order for the taillight to be fixed, some payment needs to be made. Either I can make it, having done it, or Ricky can make it, having absorbed the cost unto himself. This is what Anselm brings to the table. He says there must be a payment made for the damage that's been done in the creation. All well and good. But it, wasn't, it was, it was uh, grasping at a piece of the larger picture. And it wasn't until you fast forward another couple hundred years to the Reformation, in which the reformers, particularly Martin Luther, recognized that, yes, Anselm has part of this correct, but what must be paid is deeper than simple uh, damages. In other words, imagine that I had broken Ricky's taillight out of malicious intent. Suppose that I am jealous of Ricky's car, or I'm jealous of Ricky and hate him and want to cause him pain. Does not some payment need to be made for the actual condition of my heart? Isn't there some penalty that needs to be made to curb perhaps my behavior or to control uh, my tendency to do wrong. Right? We live in a society in which we constantly hand down penalties to try to curb certain forms of behavior and so that payment or restitution may be made. And this was the larger picture of understanding what Anselm began to understand through the lens of satisfaction. It was the notion that, yes, payment must be made for the damage that is done to creation, but it's much more than that. Payment must be made in terms of actually being punished. You've done something wrong that has alienated the holiness of God. The result of that is a punishment so that God's character might not be compromised. And this becomes known as penal substitution. Penal in the sense of penalty. Substitution in the sense that someone has stood in your place. Now, sadly, we have... We're going to talk about at some length today why we've really distanced ourselves from, ourselves from this particular theory of the atonement, which is surprising because it's been so important in our tradition. 
But one way, right at the bat, that I want you to be thinking about in terms of the ways that we do distance ourselves is when we think of substitution, we like to think of Jesus as our substitute in physical death. But we really don't like to think of him in the sense of him being our substitute in terms of eternal death, eternal separation or suffering hell. But that's what penal substitution is about. That Jesus takes the full penalty, physical death and eternal death, on our behalf in our place. Once we start losing that, we lose uh, much of the gospel. And so what I'd like to do is to spend a little bit more time making sure we understand biblically the notion of penal substitution. Then two, consider what happens when we give up sin and guilt. And thirdly, consider what happens when we compromise God's holiness. In other words, first thing we're going to do is biblically look at, at penal substitution. Two important components of penal substitution are one, uh, God's or our human sin and guilt. And so we're going to look first at what happens when we compromise on that. And then lastly, we're going to look at what happens when we compromise on God's holiness, which is another essential component of understanding penal substitution. So what does it mean to really understand this theory of the atonement? That uh, Christ is our substitute in our punishment. There are three basic components to understanding this theory of the atonement. Number one is understanding human sin and guilt. The Bible holds that you have engaged in rebellion against God, that you've engaged in sin, and that you are guilty as a result of that sin. We could turn all over the place, but if we turn to the Old Testament, we could look at Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, not, who does good and never sins. Or we could turn to the New Testament and look at the beginning of Romans, where for the first three chapters, Paul basically spends all of his time making sure that we understand that the human race is condemned by sin, and in 3.20 writes, For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Point number one. You have sinned as a result. There's no one who hasn't sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. Now why does this matter? Point number two. God's holiness. We can't conceive of law-breaking, of sinning against God, as something that is impersonal. As something that does not offend his character and who he is. In the same way that, can you imagine a son who defiantly rebels and mocks and compromises the integrity of his household as he uh, launches an assault against his father? Would you ever say to the father, why would you take that personally? Right? It's absurd. It's also absurd to say that God, the creator, would not take your sin and rebellion personally as he is your heavenly father. One easy way to see this is when we go to the Old Testament to consider Israel's sin, what is the number one metaphor used biblically to describe our rebellion? It is adultery. It doesn't get more personal than that. Right? God makes it clear that when we sin against him, it's very personal because we are choosing to love something other than him in his place. We give our affection to the wrong thing. We make a created thing an ultimate thing. And so the Bible tells us that God judges the sin. Judgment for sin is a constant theme in the New Testament, that the wicked must pay for their sin. And God expresses his anger personally over sin. We could consider John 3.36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God 
remains on him. Well, that puts us in a terrible situation. Guilty as a result of our sin, condemned before the holiness of God and under his wrath. We can't get out of it on our own accord, right? And so the third component of understanding penal substitution is that Christ becomes our substitute in our punishment, in our penalty. And here we might turn to the passages that we've read. Isaiah 53, verse 7 in particular, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Passages like Psalm 53 in the Old Testament are fascinating because they're almost born out of an unbearable tension. When Psalm 53 comes on the scene, no one's thinking, oh, this will be fulfilled by God coming in the flesh and taking on the sin of humanity and dying on a cross. But it's a voice that erupts out of the Old Testament because you have God's people realizing that they cannot possibly keep the law and that they're alienated from God and that they are incapable of fixing this situation. So you have the expectation that God starts to reveal the hope that he will provide a servant who will stand in the place and actually resolve the tension of a disobedient people who cannot save themselves. That's what we read in Isaiah 53. Then by the time we get to the other side of the resurrection, right, Paul is constantly drawing on these passages, clarifying them for us. And in Galatians 3.13, he writes, Christ redeemed us, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus allows himself, even though he has not sinned, to be cursed, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And thus Jesus takes upon himself the penalty for our sin and guilt. That, in a nutshell, is penal substitution. You are guilty for sin. This is an affront to God's holiness that he must punish. His wrath is upon you. You are in big trouble and hopeless and helpless unless someone stands in your place, and that's why God shows up in Christ, to stand in your place. Now, there are few, in my opinion, there are a few doctrines as subject to uh, being given up or debate or being pushed to the wayside, as is penal substitution today. You have people talking about in all kinds of ways, whether it makes God, God seems a monster to require this. Uh, how does an innocent person dying justify a wicked person? That doesn't seem just. To the notion that, is God this serious about sin? Boy, that, it seems like a real buzzkill. Right? Isn't he kind of loving and forgiving and gracious? Do, are we taking sin more seriously than God is taking sin? And it's kind of, this kind of language that is increasingly permeating our culture, even our Christian culture. And so I want to ask those two questions. What happens when we give up or compromise on human sin and guilt? Number one. And number two, what happens when we give up or compromise on God's holiness? And part of this is what, what people are essentially doing when they engage in this line of thinking is saying there are aspects of Scripture that I'm going to term archaic or outdated or not applicable because I don't really like them. And therefore, if I push them aside, I get a picture of God and a picture of uh, the gospel that I like quite a bit better. And it doesn't bear down on my life nearly as much. 
And that's what I'm going to live with and move forward with. But uh, as one theologian pointed out, when you start, Scripture is an organic whole. And when you start taking out pieces of the organic whole, you compromise everything. Uh, this theologian compared it to, you know, we sometimes think now that we can manipulate DNA. There's a lot of talk about going into ecosystems and changing them. Particularly a lot of talk about taking out that very nasty mosquito. I think the Egyptian one that uh, carries all the diseases, particularly malaria. So some biologists say, well, what if we just go in and take out that mosquito? We have, overnight, we will remedy the world of all kinds of ailments. But there's another school of biologists say, you don't know what's going to happen when you mess with the food chain. And you don't know what's going to happen when you mess with the DNA of a mosquito. Right? You, there will be consequences that will be unintended, and you cannot foresee them. When we start messing with Scripture and taking out pieces or reducing aspects that we don't like, there are unintended consequences. And the major consequence that I want to show you today is that by taking out some of what we might feel is bad, we compromise the good. If you do not preach the bad news, you cannot preach the good news. And if you make the bad news less bad, you make the good news less good. So the first point, what happens when we give up sin and guilt? Recently, I had two interesting conversations with people in my neighborhood about faith. And one was uh, with a woman who wanted to articulate that it was dumbfounding to her that people still judged people, other people, by such archaic standards like the Bible. Why can't we just let people do what they want to do and live the way they want to live their life right? and not speak into it unless they're actually hurting someone? And so we talked about that, but I offer that to you as an example simply right, of what our culture has come to venerate, which is tolerance. This notion that, hey, why are you Mr. Judgmental? Why don't you back up? You don't have any ground to stand on here, and we're just going to let everybody get along, right? It's become one of the paramount values of a pluralistic society. And then I had another conversation with a woman who teaches uh, she, at a Christian school in Dallas, and she was talking about how she loves her school, and one of the reasons she loves her school is that students get to speak on chapel, and the school has chapel every day, and the students get to speak on whatever faith means to them. So a Muslim, a Buddhist, a secular humanist gets up and simply says, well, I think faith is this, and this is why I like faith. And what she went on to say, she thought that was great because it was tolerant and everyone was loving one another and everyone was embracing one another. And to her, this was an exceptionally good thing. And when the subject was casually raised, you know, well, what does God think of that? The notion was, well, why wouldn't God be great with that? Right? These are just people exploring their world and trying to figure life out. Why would he be offended with that in any capacity? Now, what is happening in that line of thinking is, is essentially this. Right? If we looked at the world and simplified it a little bit, we would say that the world is comprised essentially of two different kinds of religions. There's the religious system, which says that you must produce a certain uh, caliber of merit and bring it before God, and then he will receive you into his presence. An easy example might be Islam. You must, you must keep to a certain code of conduct, and once you do, you are received into God's presence. 
The other kind of religion in the world is one that is based not on the merit of the individual, right? But particularly Christianity being the prime example where God says, you can't actually produce any merit that's acceptable in my sight. I have to produce your merit for you. I'm going to do that and I'm going to give it to you. You will experience it by faith. And as a result of receiving this gift, then you come into my presence. Now what this woman, I think not, not that she knew what she was articulating, but was articulating essentially a religion in which as long as everyone is doing the best that they can, as long as everyone is committed to some level of good, everything else is essentially negotiable. Right? That's what you need to do in order to be received into God's presence. She was articulating this notion that, that relig of religions in which you present a record to God and then are received into his presence. Okay? Now here's the question that I would have for her would have for the many people around us in our community, and maybe you wrestle with this, this kind of question. Right? For these people who bring the record and are doing the best they can, they're trying to do good and receive right standing with God, okay, all well and good. What, where in your system uh, is there a place for a, a moral failure? You see, I recognize that I never live up to my standard. I fail all the time every week. And so I don't really think that I'm doing good enough. And so if your system allows people to stand in God's presence when they're doing good enough, well, I don't think I'm doing good enough. So, and what about all the people who think that they have failed in some capacity or think that they are unworthy in some capacity? Where is there room in your system for those people? And that's kind of a humming and a hawing. Because you, they'll never say that we allow everyone. Right? You can't say that we'll allow the psychopath or Hitler to, be, to stand before God and to present some case. They're not doing good enough. So somewhere, abstractly in there, there's a line. On one side, you're not doing good enough. And on the other side, you are doing good enough. And if you commit to that kind of system of thinking, you have big questions to answer. How do you know when you've done enough? Who gets to decide? Who draws that line? And you realize that you are in a hamster wheel. Or you don't like to think about the hamster wheel and you just decide, well, I don't really know it. It's out there. I'll know it when I see it. But I'm pretty sure I'm on the right side. And I'm just going to not worry about it because God, at the end of the day, will be a pretty gracious guy. No. That's what, and from one perspective, that's terribly exclusive because to someone who says... Uh, I haven't made it. I've made a mess of my life. I know that I can't possibly produce this kind of goodness. I know that I'm on the other side of that line. Where do I fit? This, this type of thinking doesn't have a place for that person. But Christianity does. Because Christianity is saying the opposite. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Because what matters is what Christ has done on your behalf. That is what permits you to stand in the presence of Christ. And so you could say, well, Christianity is terribly exclusive. And I say, yeah, it is exclusive. Because if you think that you're good enough to get into heaven without Christ, you're out. You stand on the other side. But the only thing that you do have to recognize is that you're actually not good enough. And that you need something that is offered to you as a free gift. And that, at the end of the day, is not that exclusive. Compared to the exclusivity 
right, of my neighbor who says, well, even though I have trouble defining it, you ultimately have to be good enough to stand in the presence of God. And that excludes everyone who's not good enough. And it's horribly exclusive. So you see what just happened. If we start to negotiate on the nature of human sin and guilt, and to say that you are really bad, and that you have really alienated your relationship with God, and there is nothing that you can do, if we negotiate that and start to say, actually, you can make yourself pretty good, at least good enough to get in, you've totally diminished right, the actual grace that God has extended to you. The grace of the gospel is that it doesn't matter who you are. The worst murderer can repent and be visited by the Holy Spirit and believe in Jesus Christ and be redeemed. But to reduce sin and guilt is to reduce the beauty and the inclusiveness and the broadness of the gospel. By starting to knock out some of the bad, we lose a whole lot of the good. Secondly, what happens when we compromise God's holiness? Now, compromising God's holiness can often go one of two different ways, depending on where you grew up and how you think about God. Some of you grew up in the church, and you uh, have considered yourself to be a long-standing Christian, and for most of your life, you have confessed that, you, that Jesus has died in your place. And you celebrate that reality. But often what you mean by that is that Jesus has died a physical death for you. In other words, he came and he lived the life that you couldn't. He was obedient to the law. And then he was cursed by hanging on a tree. So he took that physical death. But you have a tendency, even if you're not thinking about it directly, to stop there and to not continue to go forward and say, no, Jesus took all of my penalty. And my penalty included not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. It included suffering, the suffering of hell. Wait, so Jesus went through that as well? Yes, he did. Right? We see it at the cross. Right? When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see the Father turn his back on the Son because of the sin that the Son, the curse that the Son has taken upon himself. Now imagine for a moment how much that hurt, the suffering that was involved in that. Right? You have some, an acquaintance that, that blows you off. You think, that kind of hurt. I'm a bit offended. But then think about your closest friend or your spouse, someone that you are, are deeply intimate with, and they say, I hate you. I want nothing to do with you. I'm turning my back on you. Good luck. That's deeply wounding. That's kind of a lifetime wound. Some of you know that. But can you imagine a relationship in which there is no beginning? The relationship between the Father and the Son, which is perfect. And suddenly that relationship is torn asunder and the Father forsakes the Son. Essentially, you would have to take your worst emotional pain and magnify it a million times. And you might just taste a shadow of what the Father and Son experience, right? He enters into eternal suffering, existence apart from the presence of the Father. And not only that, but if Jesus only had to die a physical death, right, he would have been out 20 seconds. Instead, he's out days. 
And we don't have the details of those days, but the Orthodox Christian faith has always held that in some capacity, Jesus surrenders himself to the power of the Prince of Darkness. That he goes and suffers the punishment that we were due. We refer to it historically as the harrowing of hell. Jesus does, just, Jesus does not just die a physical death right, to remedy your condition. He suffers separation from the Father. He suffers uh, in some capacity under the devil right, until he's set free, raised from the dead, because death could not hold him. But that's the degree of suffering that he endures to handle God's wrath, which is based on God's holiness. And if we start to say things, which I hear all the time of late, uh, well, we take God's holiness far too seriously. Um, and here's, here's one that I, it seems to be um, almost becoming a mantra of our neighborhoods. Uh, you know, as I think about me being a father, I act toward my kids in a very gracious way. I would expect that God's going to be as gracious to me as to, I am to my kids. And so he's just not going to be, he's, you know, all the talk about him being so serious about sin, it's overrated. It's overblown. But in that, what are we doing? We negotiate the holiness of God, and we negotiate his wrath, and then we say what Jesus had to do wasn't that serious, right? He didn't necessarily have to actually suffer the way that we're talking about him suffering. And by compromising on God's holiness, you've compromised on his love. In other words, Jesus didn't have to go to those lengths, right? Suffering in hell, eternal separation from the Father in order to redeem you if we're blowing God's holiness and his wrath out of proportion. If we give up the bad or minimize it, we give up a lot of the good. The other way that we compromise on God's holiness is, uh, is a more... A more modern condition, often seen in people who don't necessarily grow up in the church, but may have some affinity for Christianity, and this may be you this morning, is, 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 is as we've described in some ways, to simply say, God must be more laid back than that. He can't be taking sin so seriously. And in here, it's not only that we compromise the holiness of God, but we compromise the nature of sin as well. Because what is sin? Yes, sin is breaking God's law. It's being disobedient. But sin is ultimately slavery. In Romans 1, Paul describes sin as we, humanity, deciding to worship aspects of the creation and giving them ultimate authority. So whether it be your job or your role as a parent or power or money or sex, any of these things, you begin to find your life and identity in those categories and you pour yourself into them to the degree that you sacrifice because it's an idol and you give your heart to it and you think it will give you life, but it demands more and more of you. And this is why we would call sin slavery. Now imagine that you are a parent and even if you're a young person, you can imagine being a parent and watching your child go down a road of slavery and bondage to some entity. Should you be more laid back? Are you overreacting to be angry toward what is consuming them? Well, why would we think any less of our Father if He loves us that He would be angry at what is consuming us? 
E.H. Gifford put it this way, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. What happens when we say, God's not taking sin that seriously. We're doing the best we can. Right? He's going to honor our, our good intentions and good efforts. It's the thought that counts, and our flesh is pretty weak. When you begin to go down that road, what you're actually doing is diminishing the love of the Father and saying that He can't actually hate the sin in you that is enslaving you to the degree that He describes in His Word by diminishing the badness of that sin, by diminishing his anger toward that sin, which is a characteristic of his holiness, you ultimately diminish his love. And you make him a father that's not that passionate about the welfare of his child. You see, in each of these three cases where we would compromise some aspect of God's character or of some aspect of what we are describing as penal substitution, we then compromise the beauty of the gospel itself. If you diminish God's holiness by suggesting that his wrath does not need Jesus to suffer hell, then you have diminished the extents to which God has gone to save you. If you diminish God's holiness by suggesting that he is not that upset regarding sin, then you diminish the love the Father has towards sinners. It is only in preaching the bad that we understand the good. The bad is that you are far more sinful than you will admit. You will consume others at the drop of a hat to have your own way. You will hate people who get in the way of what you want. And you dream about yourself more than anything else in this world, far more than you think about Christ. And that results in guilt. The damage done to this creation And the wickedness in your heart, you bear responsibility for. God must punish that. If he didn't punish that, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be holy and he wouldn't be worthy of worship. Which means that you're about to be crushed under a punishment and a suffering that you could not possibly bear. Save that God would come and say, in the midst of this situation, I present myself to take your place. He substitutes himself in the midst of our penalty. Now what a beautiful story that I don't personally believe any human being would ever write because that's not the kind of God we want to worship. That's a God that gives so much and requires so much of us. And so what would it be to be moved by this story? I hope you go today and rather than running to perhaps any of the activities that may be on the docket or the entertainment or the rest and relaxation that you look forward to, whatever it is this week, will you at least set aside time to sit down and think about Jesus taking your place to the extent that he not only suffered physical death, but he suffered hell that you might be redeemed and not have to suffer that. Only then do you begin to understand God's love for you in Christ. And only when you begin to understand God's love for you in Christ do you begin to understand what it is to love him in return. We hate to think about that. We hate to sit and be quiet and dwell upon it. Why? Because we would much rather think, yeah, Jesus cleared this slate so that I could now be obedient 
and make sure that I can stand before God on my own accord. And so I'm going to go fix my sin and set myself up and make sure that I'm presentable. I'm going to scrub behind the ears. And that's not the story. You can't make yourself clean, right? As we sang earlier, it's only by falling at the feet of Jesus that we can be made whiter than snow. And so as you dwell upon it this week and even now, let's close with the words of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, we confess to you that we are wayward sheep and we would wander anywhere given the opportunity save for the love that you have expressed to us in being our substitute. Would you help us? Would you send your spirit to impress upon us what it means for you to take our place and for the love that is entailed in such an act. And I pray that you would reduce each of us to our knees this week in thanksgiving, in praise, and a desire to love the one who has loved us so deeply. We ask for your help and grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.